Welcome to the second season of the PEBC podcast. My name is Michelle Jones, and I will be hosting our series on phenomenal teaching. In season two, we will take a deeper dive into how the strands of the PEBC teaching framework of planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment cultivate student agency, equity, and understanding for each and every student. I'm honored to share these conversations with authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers with you. Thank you so much for listening in. Today, Lorena Herman is joining me on the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast to discuss the critical work of creating anti-racist education systems that support culturally sustaining pedagogy and strive to dismantle systems that promote the traits of white supremacy in the classroom. Lorena is the chair of the National Council of English Teachers Committee Against Racism and Bias in the Teaching of English, and she's co-founder of Disrupt Techs. Lorena also co-founded Multicultural Classroom with her husband and education leader, Roberto Herman, and serves as a director of pedagogy at EduColor. Lorena has held educational leadership positions at the department level, school-wide level, and in the larger district level from designing curriculum to strategizing for improvement. Wow. Welcome to the podcast, Lorena. You are incredibly busy. <laughs> I cannot busy. believe everything you're into. Yeah, so thank you yeah. for joining me today. I know that we have so much to talk about, but let's start off with how are you? I'm okay. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm busy and I'm tired now also with a newborn. And so, um, but I'm, I'm happy to be here with you talking about all this stuff because this is what I love. This is what I do. I cannot wait to dive in, and I just have to tell you that this has been such a pleasure to get to know you and to get to know your work in a, in a kind of a more intimate level, you know, preparing for our conversation today. So one thing I want to highlight is that you're the author of this great workbook, and it's called The Anti-Racist Teacher, Reading Instruction Workbook. And you're also the author of an upcoming text called Textured Teaching. So I have been, you know, reading through your workbook over and over again, and I have to tell you that I hit one paragraph and it stopped me in my tracks. I have read this paragraph so many times. Yeah. And I had to just stop and think and reread. So do you mind if I read it to you? Go ahead. Because <laughs> then I want to hear a little bit about sure. your thinking behind this. Because, And then I'll tell you mine if you want to hear it. Sounds good. So <clears throat> you wrote, we all have to do this work. I want Latinx, African-Americans, Black Americans, Asians, Asian-Americans, and indigenous people of this land to reconsider and evaluate themselves using this workbook. Whose values are we holding onto tightly, and how are those values impacting young people? I was thinking of you as I worked on this. I did this because I love you, because I love us. White folks, we need you too. As descendants of colonizers, you have so much undoing to take on. The work before you is critical and essential. This is not about shame. Take that pain and turn it into a fierce love for justice and righteousness. Wow. I know. It's a lot, right? Now I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful call to action. But tell me more. Like when you were writing that paragraph and creating this workbook, what were you thinking? Yeah, so... I, I had to pause. Um, I was writing and writing, you know, so much, just furiously. And then I, I stopped because originally I'd written something else that was a call to action, but it just, it wasn't, it wasn't communicating the love and tenderness that I was actually feeling. 
and the the tone that I wanted to welcome folks um, that I wanted to use to welcome folks into this work through this this little workbook. And so I stopped and I um, and I said, okay, how can I just how can I name the people? Right. Because calling people by their by their name and their and acknowledging their identity is one way to 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 be intimate with folks. And then I also want to um, I don't want to let anybody off the hook. Um, and I want to use that very, you know, the very things that that um, causes hesitation to be the impetus, you know. And so, like, I know that for those of us who are, you know, people of color in this country, too often we feel like we are above it all, but we're not. We're, we're part of the system here, if, especially if you've been raised here and born here. And so we have stuff to dismantle ourselves. And I know that one of the big hesitations for white folks is often feeling like either this isn't for them, this isn't their work, what is my lane, should I do any of this? Um, and understandably, there's this horrible burden that, that many carry, right, of, of like, my ancestors did this, but I, I haven't necessarily. And so I know all that, right? Like we know this. And so I'm not going to shy away from it. I mean, that's part of the conversation is, yeah, let's deal. Everybody actually has to heal from racism, even those that perpetrate it, right? Because it is a thing that dehumanizes all of us, both the victims and the per person dehumanizing someone else, because you have to also dehumanize yourself in that process. So there's healing that we all have to do. Um, and I... I wanted all of that to somehow <laughs> come out in those like, you know, whatever many lines. So I tried. <laughs> oh, I think it's about 10 lines on the page and it stopped me in my tracks and hearing your thinking behind it will have me reading that paragraph over and over again. Oh. Because there's this, like you said, this blend of like, there's a call to action. Like there's a serious request. Mm -hmm. But there's also, like you said, that love and tenderness and that invitation to like, to like do this work. Mm -hmm. and and to find out more. And so after I read that, I just dove into the workbook and I've read it multiple times. It's dog-eared. I've highlighted it. I have, you know, my flare pens and all my yes. colors with my flare annotations. Pens. Love them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and I just keep going back to it over and over again. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm, I'm so glad that it's useful. It's useful and uh, on just so many levels. And so... Really, I think, you know, after reflecting on, on reading that and some conversations with you and, and a lot of your work, I'd love to um, help, I would love for you to help me think about one of the questions at PEBC. So as a group of staff developers, you know, we work across the country. We've recently published our PEBC teaching framework in the book, Phenomenal Teaching. And, you know, in that framework, we talk a lot about planning and how as educators, when we plan, we have to plan with purpose. We have to plan for the people in front of us. And we also need to also plan the processes. We also write a lot about community and wanting all students to feel like learners mm -hmm. and that they belong. And you know, we know that selecting materials and the way in which we present materials and our pedagogy has an impact on every child. And so one of our big questions is, how do we teach for agency, equity, and understanding? And I would love for you um, to be so honest with, with us today and honest with me and help me dive into that. Like, so, you know, from your perspective, how do educators embed anti-racism and anti-bias pedagogy into their instruction? 
um, you know, what you just said sparked a thought for me, which is that the community, the community that you just talked about, right? That we write about community, you said. And so that community actually depends on the effective and anti-biased and anti-racist planning that goes into, um, right, the, 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 the people and the processes um, and the intentional planning, like all of that actually either builds an effective community and a warm and welcoming one or not. So, you know, none of this work that we do in education is mutually exclusive of this anti-bias and anti-racist work. When we do that, right, when we attempt to do that, because we don't actually ever do it, <laughs> ignoring, right, ignoring these issues and the silence around these issues is complicity. So there is no escaping that there are issues present in your classroom or that your, that your teaching is in some way unbiased. That's not... That's not a real thing, just because as members of society with other humans around us, we are biased. We have biases. Um, so, you know, how how does this work begin? How do you, um, you know, think about the way your practices are, are influenced by biases? I mean, that's literally where you begin, right? It's like, stop. Mm -hmm. What has shaped me? What are the elements of my identity? And I don't even mean like racially, right? You can even start before that. Like, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm from a small town. What are the things about living in a small town that have shaped my ideas around stuff, whatever that is, right? Oh, no, I'm actually a city girl. Cool. Well, what, how has that impacted the way that you select text, the topics that you want to explore with students, the way that you manage classrooms, right? Like there's so much that goes into um, how our selves seep into and show up in our planning and in our classroom and our curriculum. So that's why um, it's important and why a lot of people who talk about ABAR, which is the acronym for anti-bias and anti-racist, that's why so many of us talk about that it starts with the self um, because we are politicized and I don't mean partisan I mean politicized in the sense that our identities uh, play a role in how we are seen in this society and and our quality of life right if you are deemed to be member of x group that either um, you know creates opportunities and access for you or not so even if I don't think that even if I don't see myself as a brown woman, right, that is how society sees me. That doesn't mean it is the totality of who I am at all. I know the truth and the people in my life who are closest to me know the truth. I'm using quotation marks, right? But, um, you know, the truth in the sense that me being a brown woman isn't the only thing that I am, but I also must, in order to exist in this society safely and survive it, I, I have to be aware that that is how I am seen here and all the implications of that and what that means in certain spaces and, you know, et cetera. Wow. So there's the identity piece. And that's that almost like that instructional fingerprint that we all bring to our classrooms. Like we all bring who we are to our classrooms and to our schools and to our work. And so really considering how who we are and what has shaped us impacts our identity and then what do we need to really really recognize in terms of systems and structures and I think that takes us into really talking about like what does this look like at 8 30 on a Monday morning and I'm wondering if you can help us dive into your framework 
um, around anti-bias education. I know that heart, hands, and head are really important to you. And I love that framework. Yeah. Um, so let's dive into really what is at the heart of anti-bias education for you. Yeah. Um, so at the heart of, of uh, ABAR education is um, a culturally sustaining pedagogy. And many people have heard of CRT, a culturally relevant teaching or, or pedagogy or culturally responsive teaching by Dr. Geneva Gay. Um, and what Dr. Django Paris did in 2012 was say, you know, build on both of those. He built on those two frameworks and said, we need to also sustain. We need to move beyond simply um, being relevant to and being responsive to. And we need to also sustain the life ways and communities of those people who are coming into our classroom who have through curriculum been historically excluded and vilified, etc. Right. And so you know, then in 2017, he came together with Dr. Sami Alim and they published essentially the textbook for culturally sustaining pedagogy. And it has been transformative. I say all of that <laughs> because <laughs> it's important to understand that this is not simply about, um, you know, feelings. Right. That's some of the resistance that comes up is that these are, quote unquote, you know, leftists or whatever, you know, things they, they think they are, are insults. Um, because we're coming in there and bringing in our feelings and our thoughts. And actually, no, this is a, a research-based uh, stance on pedagogy that aims to right a lot of the wrongs in education. And to say, once and for all, let's actually just teach, right? Let's teach actual truth and information to all, not just about some for some, and that the rest may assimilate and adjust along the way. So that, that is the heart of, of ABAR teaching for me. That's, that's my framework. I know other people begin in other places. Um, and I know that we're all aiming for the same thing, right? Which is education that's going to help liberate our society, ourselves, you know, each other. And that idea of sustainability rather than assimilation is so powerful. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you really value every every child, every learner, every experience and every culture is valued. When you think about bringing that to a classroom, it's such a shift. Mm -hmm. And so I think then that takes it then into the head. Like when we think about what is that kind of headspace and, you know, that cognition, that mental piece around ABAR education, how would yeah. you define that? Yeah. So the, the head of ABAR teaching is um, essentially the what, if the heart is the why, the head is the what. What am I going to teach instead? What changes might I make? Um, you know, what are some of the topics that I might have to consider? Uh, you know, et cetera. So that's the, the academic part, essentially. The head is, um, you know, an example of the head is, is disrupt text, right? Um, re-envisioning what the canon or, or what books we're teaching in middle and well in all grades really uh elementary too because there's a canon there um so you know re-envisioning what is this curriculum what are the the books that i'm teaching what are the voices that are being um 
you know, lifted up and centered in my courses. Um, in science, what are the what are the topics that we're not covering? What are the ways that we're not addressing the way science has been implicated and strategically used, actually, to to um, sustain and create systems of oppression and inequity, right? Um, in math, how how has math been implicated in the project of oppression in this country? How have statistics been used against communities? How have certain mathematical courses been uh, exclusive of so many people in high schools and in middle schools? How has math been used to track folks in education? Therefore, you know, in a way that actually created like um, patterns for whole communities, for whole ethnic groups, right? Because if it was like one kid got tracked or Right. Like in one city, this terrible thing is happening. No, this is a national situation. So the what is the part that a lot of people like to jump to. Right. Uh Because the why is it's just so abstract in some ways. It's it's hard to dig in. You know, it feels kind of like therapy (laughs) a little bit. Right. Because you do. You have to do some emotional surgery in the why you have to stop and think, why am I in this classroom? Why am I a teacher? How will all of this work change my my purpose here, right? Or not? But you won't know until you go through it. And and so instead, folks are like, okay, let me just change the posters up in my classroom. Let me teach a really cool book and check off the box that now I have diverse books. Let me do the one project once a year on social justice, you know, quote unquote, whatever that means. Um, and so then it becomes performative, right? And that will we hear that term a lot of like, oh, this is just performative. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what that means is that you haven't really done the internal work to make this an entire part of who you are as a teacher because this is not a unit or a lesson or a book. And when it is a unit or a lesson or a book, it's super obvious. And that's why it's performative because like you're clearly just dealing with um, wanting to have this conversation one time and say you did it, you know? Um, like if you think about a relationship and your your partner um, one day shows up with flowers and checks off, see, I think of you, I care about you, there, this is intimacy, I value you, my, you know, my love language is quality gifts or whatever, and here you have your flowers, and that person's supposed to be great for the next 364 days of that year. We would all know, like, okay, you clearly don't mean that, that's pretty performative, right? So we see it in other areas, and so it plays out in the same way. So that's what the, the head is, that's the, the academic, the technical you know, the content of our work. Absolutely. And I think when you think about, you know, disrupt text and you think about when you, the, all the content areas that you just mentioned, yeah. I think a lot about planning. Uh-huh. Like if it's not going to be performative, there are some questions that need to be part of my planning repertoire yep. all the time, every day, every week, every unit. I, so Lorena, if I'm a teacher and I want to move beyond performative because that might've been my practice. And I might've been thinking I was making some strides. If you were my instructional coach, what are one or two questions that you could pose to me or that I could hang on to in my pocket that would help my, my actual planning, my every day, every week, every unit planning move beyond performative? Yes, that is a great question. And I think <clears throat> I would just pose one question just to keep it simple, right? Cause a lot of questions is a lot, but One question that you can ask yourself, how, and this actually comes from the language comes from CSP, okay? So you can, you know, if folks were to purchase that book or find the articles, um, chapter one, I think it's like, honestly, page one. 
Anyway, um, <laughs> how does this fill in the blank lesson, unit, book, concept, how does this move us, us being you and this class, or at least your students, right? So how does this move us toward positive social transformation? Okay, that is part of the goal of CSP is like, you know, how are we going to shift our practices and our ideas of the purpose of education in order to move us toward positive social transformation? So my question, which is how I plan as well, like how does this move us closer toward positive social transformation? Maybe the answer is, well, this lesson is going to build the foundation for this tough conversation we're going to deal with in two months. Okay. Or this, you know, book is going to open their eyes to an issue that I know most of them are unaware of and it'll create empathy, okay? Right, so like, I think part of the challenge is that a lot of times we want the checklist, we want the lesson plan template, okay? Because it's just, it's easier and we're accustomed to that and I'm not faulting it, I, I think that there's value in some of that, but this work is also very contextual, right? It depends on where you are and who's in front of you and who you are. Those things are a part of context and that matters um, in terms of the planning and the, the decisions that you make with the students sitting in front of you, right? Like there are books that, I, that I've taught at one school that I wouldn't teach at another, not because I am different, um, but because the student population is, and maybe the years are different, right? Like a book today dealing with immigration may not have you know, resounded as much 10 years ago, right? Those students may have been like, why are we reading this? Today, nobody is gonna ask that question, why are we reading this, right? Um, and if they are, it's for different reasons, but my point is that everybody understands the value, hopefully, right now, right? And in, in the relevancy in reading some of these books because of, of what's going on, you know? Absolutely, and so that takes us also then into Disrupt Text mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. kind of the purpose and kind of the ideas behind that particular entity, if you will. Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking about, again, this idea of the what and the, the head of, mm -hmm. you know, culturally sustainable pedagogy, mm -hmm. text selection seems critical to me. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was guessing you might. Right, so if yeah. I am, but if I'm, you know, looking for new text or if yeah. I'm thinking about mm -hmm. decentering or centering voices mm -hmm. or if I'm thinking about pairing, and that's maybe a new practice for me in mm -hmm. terms of my planning and selection. Yeah. I know that the Disrupt Text website has incredible resources. Mm -hmm. What are some other suggestions that you have for teachers who, again, want to move beyond performative? They have this great question, and we might even be kind of moving into kind of the how or the hands. Yeah, we of, are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, where do I find the books? Like, what should I, where should I start reading? What should I start looking for if this is completely new to me? Yeah. Well, that's a really big question. <laughs> those are like workshops, right? Because, exactly. And this is why, because we really are in some ways, which I think I told you before, like we are in some ways reinventing the wheel in the sense that a lot of us learned, most of us learned in this, in this system. This is how we went to school. And so we do what we know, right? We don't know what we don't know. And so Disrupt Text, as well as everyone else who's been doing this work before us, um, and even now, that, that might not be a part of the co-founders of Disrupt Text, but are most certainly our colleagues that we know are doing a lot of this textual disruption, if you will. Um, you know, we have had to reinvent what, what it means to center voices, 
um, and how then to teach those voices because it's not all going to be taught the same way, right? The, the, the best way to teach some of these new books or old books, because there are old quality books as well, um, <clears throat> is not necessarily to do your, your, your traditional simple study of literary devices, right? Like we can certainly have that conversation because it's present and it's there and they are also craft, right? Craft-based masterpieces. And they also push us into new points of view. They bring in new topics for conversation and discussion that we would be, I mean, I think, my opinion is that we would be irresponsible not to um, discuss and welcome and, and process with our students, right? Like you can't, for example, you can't simply read the narrative of, of, uh, of Frederick Douglass and just look for character development. Right? right? Like, right. you wouldn't just do that and not no. have tough conversations about, for example, the institution of slavery. Um, you can't simply teach the hate you give and talk about conflict and different types of conflict, right? You would also have to have conversations about maybe police brutality or, like, Black Lives Matter movement. Like, what was that thing? What is it still going on, right? So that's what I mean, that we can't simply teach a lot of these books just for craft, because they are so much more rich than that, that they demand that we have conversations about some of these social issues. And that's why I think that all of these books, going all the way back to the very beginning, right? Meaning like, <clears throat> it's not, you know, Disrupt Text is not just about welcoming new books for the, it's not about year of publication, <laughs> right? It's about content and it's about voices. Um, so how do I do all that work? Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. And that does move us into the hands, right? So if the, the, the um, heart is the why and the head is the what, well, the hands are the how. And so how do you do this work? Um, and like I said before, it's also very contextual and it has to do with your strengths. Like let's say that you, Michelle, are an English teacher in high school and you also really love science. Well, nothing stops you unless, you know, maybe prescribed curriculum, but let's pretend that that's not a thing right now. Uh, nothing stops <laughs> like you from, from designing a sci-fi unit that tackles issues of uh, identity and race. Why not? There's tons of, of books right now where authors are imagining a world with different beings. Let's explore that. Do we see any of our current biases in those new reimagined worlds? Oh, yeah, we do actually see some social hierarchies. Oh, look at how their bias is in. But what have they invented that is new? What's different? Et cetera, right? right. So, and that's what I mean, that we're going to have to reinvent the wheel a little bit because we have to interrogate all the systems that we knew, <laughs> that we know. Um, but it's very possible. And, and I would hope that teachers get more and more excited about this idea because you get to actually be yourself in there. You know, and that connects also to what I said earlier about Abar teaching that that racism and bias and all these things require a little dehumanization of ourselves when we dehumanize others. Because I have to not see you as a human. And by default, I am not acting like a good human. Right. So that when teachers come in and say, I want you to be yourself, I'm going to be myself, too. Like that's a, that's, you know, that's a very um inspiring space for tons of growth and learning for everyone you know absolutely because if we're humanizing everyone we're a part of that <laughs> we're a part of that yeah 
And so when we think about these, the, the idea of the hands, the how, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am, I love planning. Me too. I, I, I love it, right? And yeah. so my mind right now is going in a thousand different directions right. in creative directions. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking about how engaging mm-hmm. planning through this lens can be, yeah. not only for teachers, but also for students. Because I think so often kids come to school and it's places where they watch old people work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Chris Devani yeah. says that all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. schools shouldn't be places where young people go to watch old people work. Mm, yeah. Or mm-hmm. for old people to talk about what they care about. Mm-hmm. And I know that you have a lot of experience with adolescents, but mm-hmm. I think it, it's also true for oh, younger yeah. learners. Oh, yeah. Like, they know. They're critical mm-hmm. consumers. Yeah. And so if we can, in this idea of, you know, the how, bringing this work to classrooms Interdisciplinary is something yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. It sounds like um, being responsive and flexible, being mm-hmm. true to ourselves. Mm-hmm. What else would you say in terms of implementation? I hate that word, but that's kind of what we're talking about. Like no, that's the what how. we're talking about. No, that's absolutely. I'm not scared of that word. <laughs> <laughs> People um, yeah. Think, you know, they're like, oh. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, sure, like, oh. sure. Mm-hmm. No, but so that, you know, that's what my book is about, right? Textured teaching is about that. It's about how the how how do i practice a culturally sustaining pedagogy that moves us towards positive social transformation what does that actually look like um because in my own teaching and you know i've I've taught now at several schools and that's always the question like okay these are great ideas right and i i'm agreeing a hundred percent cool what does that look like tomorrow morning at 8 30 right um and so my answer to that is texture teaching which you know what i what i i guess part of my my um proposition here with texture teaching is that our teaching has to live in the gray okay we cannot be afraid to find ourselves in messy what feels like chaotic and even disorganized situations. It is not disorganized, but it doesn't look like everybody's sitting at their desk filling out this piece of paper, me standing at the front giving, you know, paused and and <laughs> instructions in this like perfect cadence. Like, no, actually, it's going to look um, like the Tasmanian devil ran through your classroom and that's okay. Uh, so my, you know, my thing is that with textured teaching, it's got to be nuanced. It's going to be in the gray. It's going to be contextual and it's going to have four traits. Flexible, as you mentioned, it's going to be interdisciplinary. It's going to be experiential and it's going to be student uh, driven and community centered. And, you know, I've selected those because I think that they encompass a lot there is so much that goes into each one of those traits um and it's the experience that i have and whenever i have talked to or learned from other educators this is essentially what they're doing they are creating content whether it's lessons or units um that are highly engaging and that are focused on moving us toward positive social transformation, which is another way to say social justice. Um, <clears throat> and they are rigorous, okay, which is a, a big pushback to a lot of this work. It's like, oh, again, it's just about feelings. But what about skills? As if these two things are mutually exclusive and they are not one and the same. 
Um, and so through texture teaching, I'm arguing that this is all one and the same and that it can be done and that it's going to take a lot of work. It's hard. It's, it's a lot of work on a teacher until you feel like, oh, I got it. And the planning comes to you, right, seamlessly, which is eventually how it became for me. Um, and I would say that I have had, I mean, there's so much to say about it, but I know one of the one of the concerns about all of this stuff is like, how do I keep students engaged? How do I, you know, keep them present? Um, and I would say that that once I kind of solidified my my processes with with texture teaching, with planning, and with implementing my my practice that way, like student misbehavior and stuff like that was just like not even an issue anymore, you know, at all. Well, and to have such engaging questions and have such engaging material, regardless of content area, mm-hmm. um, what I'm thinking about, you know, in my imagination, what your classroom might have looked like. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking a lot about the workshop model, which is mm-hmm. something at PEBC that we write about and talk about ad nauseum. I mean, we, we can't really get out of bed without thinking about the workshop model. <laughs> but it is that idea, right, is mm-hmm. that we want learners to be yeah. constructing their yeah. understanding. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of and both. Because we also want learners to be developing and honing the skills and strategies that they need as readers, writers, mathematicians, scientists, artists, athletes. Mm -hmm. But all of that can be done in a context that is humanizing, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. but also we really can elevate culturally sustainable pedagogy within that context of very, very careful planning, mm-hmm. like intentional planning. Yes. Using a system or a structure like the workshop model where mm-hmm. students are able to create understanding and then doing that internal work that you mentioned, the, the why. Yeah. The you heart. You have to like, start there. And, and <clears throat> let me just say something real quick too because I don't want that to become then the new barrier for folks. Like, oh, I haven't done my work, therefore I will oh, jump in. Mm-mm. Thank you. Let's, yeah, let's simul- talk about that. It's a simultaneous process and it is ongoing. I am continuing to learn myself, right? I am not an expert done learning. Let me sit back in my sage chair. No, right? Like I am learning along with folks. And as I was mentioning to you before, even in, the, even in writing that workbook, there was stuff that came up that I hadn't unpacked myself, um, you know, and, and my own experience as a person, um, creates gaps for me, right? Like, for example, I've talked about this before. I am a cis hetero woman, meaning I was born and I was assigned female and I feel that. And I have no questions about my identity there, right. In terms of my gender and I'm a straight woman. So I have no issues in in that sense. Right. Um, I live a life that is very, privileged in that sense in this country so i am not going to be the person that can most accurately describe the the you know the life and the struggle of not fitting in those boxes and so those are still that's still stuff i'm learning about i'm still having to go and read their articles and read their writing so that i can understand more about that perspective um and i'm going to make mistakes in that area so it's not, you know, you never really reach like full unbiased status. <laughs> That's not it. It's like, you know, have you reached the point of sufficient vulnerability to know that you're going to make some mistakes and that you have gaps and areas of growth? Because that vulnerability and that openness to being called out 
even by your own students. And I have been. And it sucks. <laughs> it sucks. It sucks. But like if I am asking them to go through that process, then I need to be ready to model it and do it myself. And so like, are you ready? And I'm speaking to myself as well, right? Like, are we ready to to engage in these tough conversations and even learn from the young people sitting in front of us? Um, and if so, then you're ready for the work. Mm-hmm. You're ready for all of this work. Well, and I think you also just brought up something that I think is critical. And I think especially when we think about inquiry-based education or, you know, having a workshop or a student-centered classroom, we do think about as teachers, we don't always have to be the experts. We don't have to have all of the answers. And so if I'm engaging in ABAR teaching and I want, I'm really striving for these goals, I, I can learn alongside my kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, my learning is going to be part of the journey. Yeah. And, and I growth. feel like we should, Michelle, we should be like, oh, I'm going to learn alongside them. How, you know, how dare we think that we know all the things? Like, that's just wild. But the truth is, is that this profession um, tells us that that is how we are positioned. Even the physical, even the physical structure to the classroom where you're at the front, mm-hmm. standing there, right? And I know that there's a lot of people who get that and like, that's not really an issue anymore. But yeah, that's, that's just how that played out physically. That's even if you're sitting on the side of the room. Right. Like you might still be practicing that approach. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you might still be metaphorically speaking at the front of the classroom as a sage on the stage in your practices, in your framework and your design of your stuff. So that it's in those types of um, scenarios where a student will bring up like, hey, teacher, you just said a thing that's offensive and that teacher cannot. Right. Because that's like, whoa, whoa, wires crossed. You are challenging the thing that is not supposed to be challenged. And then that's when you have these violent moments in classrooms, particularly for students of, or just marginalized students in general. Like we're seeing that even now via Zoom and, and in these digital learning spaces where, te- where, you know, for example, either, well, yeah, like ma- mainly students with um, different disabilities and different physical and learning challenges who are struggling and teachers are just, some teachers, not all, of course, we know, right? Like they are not having the best and healthiest responses. I'm thinking of this, this one, um, report that I saw recently and a teacher was like just bashing that student this is this was at the college level um yeah why because you are supposed to be this person that possesses all the knowledge and you're the stage on the stage and why would you be challenged like you know and so that lack of humility that that lack of vulnerability um isn't gonna let us get anywhere it's a barrier for sure and and a change so as we wrap up today, I have one question for you. Yeah. Thinking about you know, the, the remainder of this very unusual, unreal school year mm-hmm. and the onset of a brand new year yeah, in the fall, yeah. mm-hmm. um, what do you want our readers or listeners to be thinking about? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of people have said it too, and, and I'll just reiterate it. We cannot go back to normal. Right. Like we cannot go back to school as it was, um, because even if you had a well functioning, you know, classroom experience, we were not as a nation doing right by kids. And so I'm hopeful that people have taken this year to, well, survive. Yes, (laughs) survive, Um, survive. And I'm hopeful that folks have tried some new things that they have used the flexibility of our situation and the 
uncertainty of it all to actually experiment a little bit. Um, that doesn't mean that everything went well and that you always succeeded, but that you tried a couple new things so that when you go back, um, you can be a part of the, the, the improvement of our schools for all of us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, and as we wrap up, I really, really want to thank you sincerely for your call to action and to your, you said, powerful call to action, but also <laughs> a warm invitation mm -hmm. and for sharing so much of your thinking with us and for your thought leadership. Thank um, you, yeah. You have created an incredible body of work and just so much more to come. I'm excited to see your new text when it comes out. When it yeah, will be too. released. <laughs> September. September. Mm, I know. Timing. I'm, I'm so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be wonderful. So Lorena, thank you so much for everything for sure. today. Yeah. I wish you sure. the very best. Thanks. You too. Thank you for joining us today. We hope our time together provided inspiration and information. In closing, PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, and works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding, as described in Phenomenal Teaching by Wendy Wardhofer. We now provide customized virtual and on-site professional development, coaching, institutes, and digital courses. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program, Check us out at pebc.org.